Welcome back to session uh, 11, session 11 of the um, Hidden Things and Hidden Things, having to do with the entirety of chapter 8, also known as the one where he does all the exposition. Or maybe not. Uh, so this is the uh, part where Calliope heads out of town with Vicus. Uh, we've got a couple guys following her, a couple of, cre- well, at least one creepy guy following her, and people are reporting on her. Stuff. There's a little fight. There's some magic. There's a little bit more magic um, that I'm going to talk about in a little bit. And then we're off into the wilds outside of the safe walls of humanity or something. Calliope lets drop here. And I think this is sort of the first time she says it explicitly that it's been 10 years since she left home. She's six, she was 16 then. I've said before that she's been 16 sort of this whole time. And she's, so she's 26 now or thereabouts, pretty close to it. It's been 10 years. So how long does 10 years feel to Calliope? Um, I think that's a really interesting question because I think 10 years feels longer the older you get. For me, 10 years from when I was 30-something, 30-mumble-something, 30, 30 uh, feels like a long, 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 long time ago. It's a very different person. Thirty, The mid-30s to mid-20s feels like a phenomenally long time because so much changed. I'm not sure that the 10 years for Calliope feels that different, that long, as long, certainly not as long, partly because she hasn't changed as much. In some ways she has. She's, when it comes to calling her own shots and, you know, living her own life and that sort of thing, she's definitely, well, but even then she left home to do that, you know, partly we find out more about that later, but she left because she wanted, well, she left because she was throwing a temper tantrum, but it became something about making her own life choices. So I don't know that she's changed a lot. I have a sneaking suspicion that 26 to 36 is going to feel like a really long time for Clyde because she's got a lot of changes coming here. Um, But yeah, in a lot of ways, I mean, she's been gone for a while, but she's going back to that same point in time that she was at when she left. This is, in some ways, a trip back in time as much as it is a a trip back home, which is often what trips back home feel like. So that's probably not an accident, although I didn't notice at the time. It's definitely not an accident. What is the hardest place to hide? The hardest place to hide in this story would be in a completely stripped out, stubbly cornfield nothing to hide no place to and just enough of a pattern that you can like see when something's not matching up the pattern right it's just row upon row upon row of these three and a half inch tall believe me i've measured three and a half inch tall corn stalks that to me because it's flat barren there's no trees around there's nothing there but sky and something that could hide there this was this was actually this takes us back to I was struggling with this because I had said, I told this story already about when somebody said you should write a story and said it in the Midwest. And I said, nothing magical ever happens out there. I kind of, I meant that. I mean, I had my little things and, you know, little daydreams and stuff like that. It's weird to me now going home, how much I associate certain stories that I read at the time with the area that like my mom was driving through at the time that I read them. I can't 
really reread The Wizard of Earthsea without seeing South Dakota, which if you know The Wizard of Earthsea is a damn funny thing to associate with landlocked South Dakota, but it's because I read the book so many times when I was, you know, driving to town. But in a lot of ways, there isn't a lot of magic stuff there. So at some point in here, I think it was just before I wrote this scene, I got, the, I sort of sat down and said, okay, listen, there's magical stuff out there because I know this because they've said so. So I have to accept that. What in the hell can hide? What, what, what could, what's out there? Because what could possibly be out there? And the thought that came to me, and eventually Vicus ends up vocalizing exactly that, is it's not that there's no magic. It's that the stuff that's out there is so good at it that nobody notices. It seems like the most mundane place because it's where the stuff that's really, really good at it, really, really good at concealing themselves is at. So by definition, not only is it not boring, it's also probably one of the most dangerous places because if you're really good at that stuff, you're also probably pretty powerful. And that's where I got, that's where, yeah, for me, that logically led to things like Phagos, who we'll meet later, and, and uh, the dragon, and, and those sorts of creatures. Really terrifying stuff. I don't think that Iowa is actually where the most terrifying stuff is at. Um, Iowa's pretty bad, but Iowa's got some hills. So, you know, it's you, you, you like, basically, if you start to zero in on the most boring stretch of the world you can possibly imagine where nobody ever goes and go there, that's probably where it's pretty bad. For, uh, this is a bad example, but I also, at some point in time, I'm going to write the story about the Badlands. Ficus mentions it in passing at one point in time, but South Dakota Badlands and North Dakota Badlands, any place like that, uh, that's probably where the dangerous stuff is at in, in this kind of setting. There's probably a parallel you could draw between all the, all the dangerous, powerful stuff is out in the sticks to the, you know, all of the weird kind of kooky people are out in the sticks. Whether you're talking about Deliverance or the Unabomber, you know, there's, there's that kind of correlation that's a really cool idea that i haven't done anything with yet but i think you could totally have some fun with the the I, the reason that they're kooky is because all of this weird stuff is happening out there it's like picking up radiation off the background count you know you just you just start to get weird when you're around this kind of stuff even if you never really realize that the weird stuff is there that's kind of fun that is another part of it you know the idea that a dragon hides out there in this place where you can't start dating someone with half the town knowing about it, um, is that is if it's not just that the place is boring, it's that the, because it's boring, nobody has anything to do but pay attention to what's going on around them. You know, farmers notice weird footprints, doesn't even have to be very big. You, you, t you send somebody out there and it's like, I don't know what those prints are. And, you know, the, and I'm not just talking about, obviously, I'm not just talking about dragons, but, you know, I remember that, you know, farmers would be like, I think there's, I think there's a dog pack going around. Well, why do you think that? Well, there's, you know, I know it's this one thing out in the middle of nowhere where there's a slightly muddy patch. He drove past at 30 miles an hour while he was headed someplace else and noticed something weird in the mud and stopped and went back and looked. So if that's true... How does this stuff not get noticed? My thought is that maybe there's some stuff that does get noticed, but they've worked out arrangements. I was uh, doing a reading one time with a bunch of kids from um, a high school, and we were talking about playing what if games, like you know, what if, you know, what if you had wings? What if the wings were cockroach wings? You know, how do you play these kinds of what ifs? You know, and I, they were all from the Midwest. I was, I was um, back in my hometown, and we were talking about this book. And I said, yeah, there's this thing you'll see when you go past cornfields where every so every like, like a set distance, there's like rows of corn that aren't knocked down, that aren't harvested. And they're just there. 
And everybody knows what the story is. It's a windbreak or it's supposed to like catch the snow or it's going to be, it's, you know, the farmers leave it there. So the deer have something to eat during the winter. So there's deer. What if it wasn't? What if, what if it wasn't? What if the community had worked out a deal saying this stuff will stay here so that a certain something has a place to hide or a certain something has deer to eat during the winter or a certain blah, blah, blah. There's, what if that were true? What if the community knew that? And it's just the kids that knew this stupid story about it being for the deer or the snow stops or something because they weren't old enough to like get in on the story until they like, like you've got to buy your parcel of land before you find out what the real deal is and why they have to leave the, why you have to leave the corn. And some guys, they just don't tell, which is why they don't do it, which is why they have problems with the crops, which is why they have a rough time, blah, blah, blah. That may be the basis of a short story coming up in the Little Things collection, as a matter of fact, because I liked that idea so much while I was talking to those kids about it that I said, I'm actually going to write that. Um, I had never thought about it up to that point in time. I don't even know if this book is the last of Vicus and Calliope fighting, to be perfectly honest. Um, the, Vic the, the fighting changes. It becomes snarky. It becomes a little bit more congenial. Then some stuff happens later that makes it more about Vicus being mad at Calliope than the other way around. So the anger comes back, but in the other direction. Because she sort of damages the trust a little bit, um, but this is the last time where it come it, it comes down to Calliope being mad about. I think it's the last time that it comes down to Calliope being mad about. You never explain anything to me. This is the last time, and this was a really tough scene. I I gotta say, you know, this is a tricky scene to write because I joke about the ex being an exposition thing, but it is to a certain extent. And you can't really get around it, but at the same time, you have to kind of accept at some point in time, she's going to say, listen, damn it, explain this stuff to me. And he's going to do that. And he's not going to bring it out in drips and drabs. He's going to explain as much as he feels like he can. I can make him reticent to a certain extent, so it's not completely boring and it's not like a 50-page dump, but he's got to give something. So to a certain extent, I give myself a pass on this, there being this exposition, because he would actually do that right now. He would totally explain this because she doesn't know. So I don't think it's too onerous. And I tried to find a way, fun way to uh, explain. Funny thing though, that hidden, that, uh, the word puzzle thing, which if you guys have the hard copy of the book, you would be familiar with because there's a picture of that word puzzle in there. I had a funny story. This is terrible. I shouldn't even tell people this, but this is, this is the truth. The word puzzle story wasn't in the original version of the book. Most of what he says in there uh, is in there, but he doesn't use the example of the word puzzle. He doesn't have a newspaper as a matter of fact. That whole thing the sort of the new well no the flower trick was in there but then the newspaper got dumped and whatever i kept the newspaper i brought it back in and i did the word puzzle thing as an example which i like i think it's a great analogy i think it's a lot of fun i love the idea of shaking the paper so the letters kind of come loose and all that kind of stuff but it wasn't in there originally it happened because i was sitting there with a finished story and i was bored because I was waiting for feedback from my editor or my agent or somebody and nobody was saying anything because everybody was working and it takes bloody ages for anything to get back to you. And I started to mock up book covers. I started to come up with various ideas for book covers. So I came up with this really cool idea for this word puzzle thing where all these words that were about the story were inside the, you know, this word puzzle, but then it was also hidden things by Joyce Tushman and blah, blah, blah. So I worked out this whole thing and I really love the puzzle. But it doesn't make any damn sense if I don't actually have a word puzzle in the story somewhere for that to be kind of a quiet little callback to. So I went back into that scene and wrote that bit into it so that I would have a reason to have a word puzzle on the title page. 
that's how that's how lame I am, people. I came up with a really cool cover idea, and then I wrote the scene so the cover would make sense. Um, so yeah, that's probably the first time I've ever told that story and admitted that um, to anybody but my wife. So there you go. There's also a couple of bits in this chapter that one one of one of my backers uh, actually caught. Not everything, not, she didn't catch everything in here, which I'm actually fairly uh, comforted about, but she caught later some things that got screwed up um, time-wise because Cal Calliope spent another day in, in the city before she left, where I mentioned Saturday, but it actually should have been Sunday and things like that. Um, but there are a few things in this scene, in the scenes in this chapter, that aren't right. And the reason they're not right is because they used to connect to the last time Vicus was at the house. And in between those times, they went bowling and they went to Gluin and they, th those were new scenes. So like, I, I didn't even meant, notice them until I was doing the reading just now, but like Vicus is outside and he's packed the Jeep and Calliope is sitting there and she looks at Vicus and he pulls his hood back up, but we never saw him take the hood down. Um, and, which, you know, if you, you may roll your eye at that, but we, uh, my, uh, my agent and I had <laughs> this scene, uh, later in the book where Calliope takes off her sweater because she's got to like cut the band some bandages she's wearing. And later on, she's wearing the sweater and I never have her put the sweater back on. And probably four revisions went back and forth with my agent constantly saying, listen, you forgot the damn sweater, write the sweater back on. And she'd mentioned it, but I'd forgotten it. And I thought, then I thought I had fixed it and I hadn't fixed it. The sweater still wasn't going back on. And so I had to explicitly get the clothing back on so you roll your eyes but this is actually a kind of thing that people would notice in the continuity and they would ask you to correct somehow or and i probably would have fixed it by just taking out taking that thing out so the reason i have him pull the hood back up is because in the scene that this used to connect to was the one where he pulled the hood down in her house and she says you probably want to wash that makeup off which is like a chapter and a half back from that from here but that was the last thing before this used to be once upon a time probably uh, 14 years ago who knows uh so you, yeah and there's weird little bits like that that i notice now reading through it aloud where i'm like that's probably i should have cleaned that up a little but you you still don't you don't see it and nobody's ever mentioned it to me so now you guys know i pointed out a major continuity flaw with the hood now you know that the hood magically uh it's like uh watching that one buffy episode where you see spike in a mirror next to the entryway and you know you just have to love it and hug it. And know that you're one of those geeks that will notice that there's spike can, is visible in the mirror that nobody will, nobody else, most people will never know. And you, you special people listening to this will be one of those people who'll be able to point out that Vicus never pulled his hood down in this scene, but he's pulling it back up. Now, you know, part of the reason that, Vi that Vicus has to explain all this stuff is because he's the guide. The guide is with her, so on and so forth. I didn't go all midichlorian on it and explain every single thing and do the chemistry. I'm not going to do that. I mean, a lot of this stuff, I don't know necessarily how it all goes together. So I'm sort of hand-waving a little bit because, you know, if I write 15 books that are sort of in the same sort of setting, I may eventually need to know some of this. I may need to know where that else is that they go, but I don't right now. And a lot of, it's, this story isn't, about the weird stuff it's got weird stuff because weird stuff keeps me interested and there's cool things going on there and there may be a story about that but even if i write a story about the else that they ran off to or whatever there will always be something in there about 
the human condition. That sounds incredibly poncy and artistic and crappy or whatever. But this this story is about losing your friend and dealing with it. It's mourning. It's dealing with death. Um, every story will be something like that because that's what it is. It's always like a real story that happens to have this other weird crap happening in it. So it's not an allegory by any stretch of the imagination. I, like Tolkien, sort of share a, dis- a, a dislike for that sort of thing. But it is a metaphor. It's the best way I can explain this sort of stuff. To quote Ursula Le Guin, I think, um, I need the metaphors. If I, could t- if I could talk about this kind of stuff without the metaphor, I wouldn't have used the freaking metaphor in the first place. Um, but I do, partly because I need them and partly because it's fun. Dragons are fun. Dragons are amazing. I can't wait to get to a scene with the dragon so I can turn into a complete nerd for about 20 minutes talking about all the ways that dragons are symbolically important. And I say I'm bad at mysteries. And people refer to this story as like a mystery. And they, they, they call it a mystery, a supernatural mystery. It's, and I don't think it's a mystery exactly. And by exactly, I mean at all. Because we see who kills Josh on page three. Mikey kills Josh. Like there's claw on his hand. And then he says, Mikey. And then he's dead. He's dead. And it's 13 yeah. seconds after, like, and he's glowering at him. It's pretty obvious Mikey kills Josh. I think it's pretty obvious. Apparently not. Apparently that's not an obvious thing. Um, and then later on, like, you know, Mikey's there with him and Josh is a ghost and blah, blah, blah. And you see him with him and you get down to the end and Calliope, uh, you know, goes in there and sees him. And every single time, I mean, I talk to people all the time and like, I was just, I, I just didn't know exactly who that was or what had happened there. And then I realized which Mikey it was. And I mean, yeah, at the time that you know that Mikey kills Josh, you don't know who Mikey is, but we find out pretty soon. I mean, we have a scene with Josh and Mikey when they're kids. So the name comes back up again. I think I thought it was enough to be kind of dead obvious. Uh, apparently it's not. So apparently I'm fine at mysteries. I write something that's vaguely oblique and that apparently confuses the hell out of people. To me, the mystery isn't who kills Josh. It's why does he kill Josh? And that's the thing that I kind of keep close to my chest all the way through and actually spent a lot of time writing so that it would come out right. But he, you know, we'll, we'll get to why he kills Josh, but that, that, that to me is the mystery. Um, other people will find mysteries where they want to. And I guess I was a little bit oblique enough about it. I think the second time you read it through, it's not nearly as like, oh yeah, I guess you did tell us like on page three. But the first time it does leave people a little bit kind of like, hmm. Huh. But you know what? Hey, if it works the first time and the second time you can look back and go, oh, look at that. Then that worked out pretty well. I was, I'm, I'm happy with that. So yeah, I mean, it is, I kind of had to take a stab at it being a mystery. They're detectives for God's sake. Well, you know what? They're private eyes cops you know i have to try i'm not good at it but i actually uh give a lot of credit to uh d knippling for giving me there's a sort of a diagram of like how to lay out some stuff with the mystery and you know how to lay some false leads and that sort of thing it's sort of like this weird little tic-tac-toe board of how to build a mystery and uh i don't know i mean some of it i used some of it i didn't because it wasn't that kind of a story but i did use it for the why very very explicitly and it kind of works i think it works next time let me think what is it next time oh we <laughs> next time we get to see um vicus with the hotel room key 
and we can see the full this is the first time the vicus really pulls out some serious like sort of magical kung fu so that's kind of a good scene uh I, and actually a little bit of anger and uh madness anger uh between calliope and vicus so we're not quite done with that yet because she's a little bit about she's a little bit mad about like hey people are following us let's go to sleep um i don't think we're going to get to the scene after that with the diner uh but yeah whatever there's going to be some stuff and there's going to be some magic and then some things are going to happen and we're going to talk a little bit in the after scene about the about the motel that they stop at because it's the perfect motel for them to stop at and everybody who was a first reader hated it so until then uh i have you know who i am so i don't have to say any of that stuff anyway we'll see you next time for chapter nine <laughs>